0: hello there everyone
1: and bradley also uh hi ethics and this week we're going to be joined by uh, our new co-editor uh ollie Wellwin, if I pronounce hi, everyone. Correctly.
2: yeah that's right yeah
1: <laughs> so uh we seem to be going back to normal that's the uh, word on the streets that we've been hearing i was going out shopping the other day and uh, That was the word on everyone's lips. Uh, The world is going back to normal. But is that desirable? Obviously, it's nice that we can uh, go out and and see one another and and, uh, hug our relatives again. Uh, But there is still the looming risk of a second wave. The disease has not been eradicated. Uh, There are still many people reliant on uh, food banks. We're still living in the age of austerity. Um, is normal a good thing, or should the world be changing? Um, and I think this is the first thing that Ollie wants to talk about.
2: Yeah. Um, so, um, so basically, for for almost four months now, I've I've heard a few people say like they want to get back to normal. You know, they want to meet up with their with their friends, or they want to they can't wait to go see someone which is which is understandable in in many respects um but i would try and kind of challenge that about by saying what's so good about like our definition of normal so normal is thousands of people living on the streets and and record numbers of people using food banks certainly a massive increase in the pandemic and um now that furlough scheme's ending um it's a large percentage of of rich struggling to make ends meet, really. Um, So the two and a half thousand people, sorry, million people have just applied for universal credit, which isn't really designed for those numbers, I would say. Um, And there's also the environmental kind of angle where normal is the continuation of massive ecosystem destruction and the risk of the increasing risk of runaway climate catastrophe so i would say that this is the best chance we're going to kind of get to build a new normal in in some respects uh, i i think it's interesting
3: even if we accept that we, we want to completely turn back to to normal um which i don't think any of us on this podcast would agree with um when when is that going to happen For, so i i was potentially going to be going back to work towards the end of the month but that that's looking increasingly less likely um uh, you know talking to some friends as well um, they they're saying that the, the message they're they're getting from from their employers is potentially they might not even be back in the office until 2021 um you know if you get to that point you know maybe after christmas um, some people are going back to their offices at that point you know, you, you've been locked down almost well, not locked down, I suppose, at that point, but you, you've been working from home for, for almost a year at that point, um, and that that's got to have some some long lasting uh, cultural and, and, and economic impacts, hasn't it? You know, you know, in terms of how we work, how we view work, how we approach work. And um, so, uh, I, I think even though it feels like a lot of things are ending in terms of lockdown, I I think there's going to be lots lots of effects of, of the lockdown that sort of linger on for. for quite a few months yet and it would be really it'll be really interesting to see how that affects how, how we approach things Um, I, I think working from home at least some of the week is going to become the norm in, in a lot of in a lot of office space work um, and I think that's a good thing actually I think that's something that should change I think it, it can give p- people more flexibility in their working conditions for me personally it's going to be really useful with my my circumstances um, and I, I think there's like a like a wider set of things there as well, isn't there? About accepting um, a better work life balance and things as well. Um, so yeah, I, I I wonder I wonder how close really we are actually return, are to returning to normal. Um, yes, the pubs are open again, the shops are opening again, um, but but there's the, the, the still going to be a lot of lingering effects I think um, for. for for a lot of people, uh, and I think I don't see how that can't have long-lasting effects on how we do things.
1: Mm. So there's sort of um, two uh, outcomes, two issues with this sort of return to normality. One is um, what Ollie just uh, highlighted, uh, uh, which was um, the fact that the world isn't actually that the world that is normal isn't really that great, um, to begin with. Um, and the other uh, is the question of how this will affect our day-to-day lives, uh, how the pandemic has affected our day-to-day lives, specifically in the area of work. And I think um, I'm sceptical, I'm a little more sceptical um, than Bradley about the effect it will have on the workplace. As as a trade union official, I've dealt with um, a few cases already um, of employers who are trying to take people back into the back into the office um i don't think that there's there's been a sort of uh the the academic term is presenteeism so the the idea behind that is that um people feel compelled to work in an office even if they could work from home because if they don't others will assume that they're not working because they're at home um now most of the people i've spoken to who are working at home have actually found that the opposite is, is true um, they actually find themselves doing more work wh- when they're at home you know b- because there's no there isn't a clear delineation between their stop time and their home time which is usually delineated by travel uh if you see what i mean but there is uh, I, and i have seen it um not just pressure from bosses but also colleagues as well those who um have remained you know working in in the office or the workplace um there there's been some instances of almost bullying really um people wanting wanting their colleagues to come back to the office because they don't think that they're working so i don't feel like those pressures have gone away uh, entirely um I think that the, I think those might linger, so uh, yeah i I hope that we have more of a mix of working from home um I think that having that option is good um for for more people but i I foresee a potential reaction against working from home uh, apart from anything else um, do you think uh Bradley that people might associate it with with the pandemic? And not want to go back to it for that reason. Yeah, so I think you're
3: probably right. I think it probably depends on the sector, actually. Um, so, obviously, I work in the charity sector, I work for a students' union. Um, and I think, cer- certainly for me and, and for us, it, it's highlighted how there's lots of things that can be done from home that you might have before thought, oh no, we could never do that from home. So, I, I, I do stick to my guns a little bit. I do think, I think at least this has probably made the strongest argument for us being able to work from home. Um, that, that we've ever had. Um, although I, I do take your point, there will be certain industries, there will be certain sectors and certain employers that, that won't respect that. And, and I th- I think you're right, there is a sort of a sense of, oh, well, if you're not in the office, you're not really doing work. Okay. I think, yeah. So I, it's perhaps somewhere in the, in the middle there. Um, I, I think you're probably also right, I think some people that have, I mean, a lot of people have really struggled with their mental health um, d- during the lockdown. I think for a lot of them, they're probably very desperate to get back to the office, so quite understandably. Um, and and maybe won't want to spend very much time at home, you know, once they're they're able to not. Um, I I think I think really I don't think a, a complete work from home in the future for for people would necessarily be a great thing. I think it's about a bit of a balance. So, um, for me going forward, I'm going to be able to do two days in the office and, and three days working from home, um, and I think that'll be really useful. I think I still get to go to, into an office place. Um, I get to see my colleagues in person and interact with them for a couple of days a week and um, but but then i also get more flexible time at, at home and um, th- throughout the rest of the week so um, I, and I, and i think there will you know i think there will be people that will like that idea and um, i think that there, there's pros and cons to working from home and i think ideally what people should be able to do is be able to agree that with, with with their manager ultimately they should be able to if if they want a couple of days at home a week then we, we've sort of proven that that's perfectly possible and that things can function with that um, so, so ideally, that, that that's what I would like to see, people being able to have the option of being able to have a couple of days um, working from home a week if they want
1: to.
0: Yeah, I suppose one of the biggest challenges with this changing in attitude towards working in home is how the trade unions react, because um, you could clearly see that actually employers could use this to their advantage in undermining worker organisation. Um, there is a there is a potential risk that by being at home more regularly, see, seeing your colleagues less, you're less likely to want to show solidarity with them in a in a uh, in a case where they've been mistreated. Um, you know, it takes away that association with the workplace. Um, so I think that the unions would have to adapt in such a case to ensure that they're still having an active membership and still being able to represent their members as well as they have in the past. Um, I suppose also another issue is, and I'm aware of this in a lot of um, in a lot of city centres, um, is that there's a lot of offices, um, and they're starting to move towards this idea of hot desking before COVID, where you know somebody would use the same desk for a couple of days in a week, then they would be at home for the rest of the week. Meanwhile, somebody else would take their place at that desk. Yeah. And obviously, there's an issue around cleaning and social distancing that I know that's been a certainly come up um, as an issue that we could see more of that and with that would would mean that we get a lot more empty office space where already we're seeing a lot of vacancies in certainly outside of London and that's a concern so I, I could see this as also an opportunity that might open up in terms of taking back control I'm using that phrase of our city centres and town centres um, in terms of housing and perhaps moving people back in and reversing that that sort of um, that office takeover that that took place in the 70s and 80s it
1: would that that's an interesting point It will, i think we've spoken about it before that would be a very positive change um but it would need it would require a fundamental change in the uh way that we manage our town centers and probably extra funding from central government as well which is obviously very scarce at the moment um the the government's very reluctant in fact it's still cutting Um, unbelievably it's still cutting funding to to local government despite the the pandemic um the because uh, for example in my hometown in stevenage um there's a massive office block in the town center and for most of my childhood that place was empty um and uh, apart from like a church and a couple of offices at the at the bottom um and the reason it was empty was because um no that the the economy just wasn't it wasn't in a particularly good location i guess um i'm not sure exactly what the the business reasons were for it but um, everyone was looking at that and thinking well that would be ideal for housing but the trouble is that housing doesn't bring in as much money as businesses do you know the rents are much much lower Housing, you know, people pay rent on it, but also you've got to pay for the upkeep. You know, you've got to pay for security. Whereas with businesses, obviously they're generating revenue, so you can charge higher rents. Um, so count uh, though councils, and to be fair, larger uh, the the people who own these buildings, because um, it's not always councils. Of course, a lot of them are privately owned as well. Will keep these buildings empty in the hope that eventually. Um, a business will come along and take up that space. So it'd have to be a big change to that financial model. Um, some incentive probably um, for uh, the people who own those buildings to convert them into housing, um, because the the assumption will be that eventually uh, this will all blow over and uh, you know we can we can get back to back to normal, which is how how this uh, how this section started. Um what what are your thoughts, Ollie, having sort of started this topic, what do you think?
2: Um, so about um about people going back to work, well, with with the, the furlough scheme ending, um people won't have that support from the government anymore. Um and I think they'll have to make um a, a decision in many respects between putting themselves at risk and and being able to afford rent and all their, their bills. Um so I don't really, I don't really think that's a, a very, like logical choice to be making. Like I don't think people should be put in that position necessarily. Um, in regards to, to the changes to how people are working, I, I can't speak from experience. I haven't done much, um, many much work at home. I haven't been working from home, but um. Uh, I think people might be struggling with um, separating their work life from their, their kind of leisure life, their social life, because unless they have enough space to have like a dedicated office or a working place in their home, um, I don't think that it, it requires, I think, a lot of self-discipline to to be able to work effectively and like live effectively in the same space
1: yeah and and to be honest i have uh, found that a little bit myself i've uh, technically I'm supposed to finish work at five um but I've continued working and then looked at the clock and realized it's nearly seven o'clock uh you know so and this is what I said earlier you know some people have found themselves actually doing more work from home um the The key thing of course is that working from home in almost all cases unless it's specified in your contract. Um, or in some form of written agreement, um, it is entirely in the employer's gift to allow people to work from home, um, unless you've got a very compelling reason. Um, and some of those cases that I mentioned earlier, a lot of the people who are who have hitherto been working from home, many of them have been suffering from things like asthma. Um, but there's the, and there's sort of a struggle going on because people with severe respiratory issues, obviously, they've got. They get you know they they get to stay home many of them had shielding letters some of them have got extensions until the end of August but what what they call uh, mild cases of asthma um you know which i I've had in the past for example um yes you're at risk maybe you've got an inhaler but you're not considered severe um those sorts of people there's no real protection for. Um, There might be in due course as cases emerge and trade unions um, are stepping up to deal with those cases. Um, But obviously, uh, there's going to be, I think there's going to be a lot of precedence set during this time. Um, The thing about hot desking, I think the pandemic's probably killed hot desking. Um, I've seen that come up on a few risk assessments, um, specifically pointing out, um, you know, we've eliminated hot desking in order to make the workplace safe um, and that might that's probably a positive change because i know a lot of people don't like that Um people like to have their own workspace uh, I, I understand that entirely um, so i think i think it will be interesting to see what happens um, in the world of work um, but what about leisure time Um you work hard you play hard that's the sort of capitalist mantra Um, And last weekend, uh, Rishi Sunak, who is the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, announced, I think it was that everyone would get £500, I think, to eat out to help out. Um, But now the uh, the, uh, eat out to help out scheme has been somewhat scaled back uh, towards uh, £10 uh, Nando's vouchers. Um, I think you had some thoughts on this, Callum, didn't you?
0: yeah um I think the 500 pound uh, scheme that was first floated in the press there was one particular reason that struck me as to why they wouldn't want to do that and that's because it's essentially the starting ground for a universal basic income because if they could justify five hundred pounds to each person, in theory they could justify that in a yearly or in a or in a quarterly, Fund for people, and that's the starting point to so- socialism. And as we know, the conservatives are very much opposed to any such aggressive uh, approaches to uh, to resolving the, the the problems that we find ourselves in in this pandemic, and indeed the problems that we found ourselves in beforehand in the so-called normal um, that we all love to hear about. Um, I think that what they've done is is essentially. Switched away from the socialist approach, and they've returned to this business-first approach. So um, we still have to spend our own money, of which many people still can't afford. Ten pounds off your bill um, at, a, at a restaurant in some cases can still be quite a lot. I also understand that most of the restaurants that have signed up are big chains anyway, that won't be as struggling as much as your local restaurants. Um, I know. I think it's Nando's is one of the big names. So I think that the problem is is that they've copped out an actual solution that we're all praising them for as a great first step to maybe giving the economy a boost because we know it'll be a economic multiplier if we were to give each adult five hundred pounds to spend on certainly a specific range of items, but it would certainly support a lot of shops. Um, it would support a lot of jobs. It would keep people in jobs. They in turn will be paying their tax. The businesses will still be paying their council tax and their and their local rates, and it will keep the economy afloat. But instead, this ten pound, it, it feels to me as a cop out. As I say, it feels as if they've they've dodged it. They've completely avoided an actual solution, and this seems to be just a temporary measure and a very very much very much a cop out.
1: Yeah, it's um. The, I mean, I will be, uh, this evening, taking my first trip uh, to a pub to see someone I haven't seen for a while. Um, it will be in a shelter in, in the beer garden, apparently. Um, so, it certainly is not normal. Um, I'm not sure what it's like in restaurants. I just, I question how many people have... Been using or have an interest in going out, or uh, and whether it's even safe to do so. Because we, I mean, we keep saying this this disease hasn't been beaten yet. Um, and you know, I know, and I I'm, I feel sorry for people in the hospitality industry, those who are still employed in the in the hospitality industry who weren't just made redundant in the first weeks of the uh, of, of the crisis um because, you know, they've they've suddenly become frontline workers, you know? Um highly now at risk of catching the disease. Even if the even if COVID nineteen is is not in circulation as much as it was three months ago, um, it wouldn't take very much for it to start. And we wouldn't know that it started to spread through the population for some time, probably a couple of weeks after it's already started. So it's a huge public health risk, apart from anything else. Um, in the name of uh, dogmatic economic uh, policy, uh, or at least that's my take on it. I, I don't know what you think, uh, Ollie.
2: Um. Well, in in regards to the five hundred pound vouchers, I don't think they should have kind of even mentioned it if they weren't going to follow through on that promise. Um I think that if you tell people that they're gonna get something and they they kinda of start like planning for it and well, I guess like but budgeting and that how they're gonna spend that. I don't know, I just don't think that's that's very tasteful. Um but then sorry, what what was the last part of the question?
1: So is it a is it a health risk? Um
2: I mean, yes, I, I don't think the, the risk has gone away at all. I mean, arguably, our, our country's economy, it, to some respect, is opening up again, um, and arguably prematurely, because I don't think anything has really changed much. I think the, the virus is still here. There's no contact tracing that was promised, and the R rates are still stable. Um, there's no vaccine in, in the near future. And I think that the reality is that we can't really just pretend that it's just gone away out of convenience because, because that's when there'll be a, a second wave of deaths, which which are even more unnecessary than the last 50,000. Um, I think it might be comfortable to return to our, our lives as before, to some respect as well. I mean, I know it's not going to be normal, but I don't think that's necessarily the right thing to do. I think we should be questioning more of, of how we are Kind of returning.
1: Mm, Bradley, your take. Uh,
3: I think the the problem is is that from start to finish, um, the, the government bundled the whole thing, haven't they? Um, they clearly were were trying to follow um, a, a herding sort of process near the start. Um, and then, it, it, as, as the warnings became more and more dire about that, they had to change track quickly and, and try to essentially erase history. You know, you you've, you've got senior officials coming up and saying, "Oh, that that was never one of our policies. We were never following herd immunity." When you know, literally, the week before they they were using the phrase themselves. Um they they then failed to really properly clarify the terms of lockdown and and uh, enforce it at the start. Um. They've now started, you know, easing restrictions when we've still got far too many cases going on. Um, and all of this, I think, was partly done because of a fear of, of of some sort of impediment to, to British liberty or whatever that nonsense is. Um, and also, obviously, worries about the economy. Um, we're on track to have one of the worst um, numbers of cases in the world and one of the worst economic hits in the world. So clearly they've failed on both counts. Uh, so all of this is just in the same track, that... They're trying to they're trying to revigorate the economy, um but it but it's not gonna work because when we have more cases, they're gonna have to shut down more areas of the country like they have in Leicester. Um and that's gonna have a far worse economic impact in the long run. So they they're trying to have it both ways and, and they've ended up not having either of them, basically. Hmm.
1: Yeah, and we've got um there will be I, I think it's part it's It's quite silly really to, we've said it's quite silly really to start, to try and go down this route, to start up our service economy, when there are other priorities. Um, You know, we've got, we've got a massive housing crisis, you know, we've got, uh, you know, well actually that's, 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 um, that's the big thing. Why can't we be thinking about retraining people? to go into other sectors, to build a new normal uh, rather than, you know, because I, yeah, I I mean, I enjoyed working in the hospitality industry, but most people who are doing it are doing it just to sort of pay the bills. They're trying to get by and they deserve a pay rise. But, you know, we've got got to build our um, green industrial revolution. You know, we haven't forgotten about climate change you know this this should be an opportunity to sh- reshape our economy um but the the government is hell bent on returning us to where we were uh, back in january um you know it's so is this a, is this a missed opportunity do you think um who wants to come back on that
0: come on on um, I, I think it is um i think that i think that the labor party is equally as guilty as not pushing this new agenda that we should be um if we remember really early on in the pandemic actually we were talking about an exit strategy but it seemed to be an exit strategy of returning to normal again you know um the labor party is just as guilty at the moment certainly the leadership i'd say a lot of activists are very much uh vocal on saying that We do need to have a a fundamental rethink of how we approach this Um, and we need some solutions now um, because this is the perfect time to lay the groundwork for that green industrial revolution to say that if we're going to have mass joblessness then let's put some money into it, let's retrain people, let's get the economy going by reinventing ourselves. But I think the what has really been exposed is our, our reliance on the services industry, um, on shops, on pubs, on clubs, um, you know, on people being consumers. Because the minute we've taken that away, the the, the economy's collapsed effectively. We've lost a, a big chunk of GDP. We've um, evidently going to see a number of jobs uh, lost. We're going to see the, the country fall to its knees and that's because we haven't got a diverse economy we're so reliant on the services industry that the minute it's taken a hit through covid we haven't got a hope for recovery unless we have a government or indeed an opposition calling for a, a thorough change to how we approach things
1: yeah and i think that the uh, the labor party is missing some beats um i have to say uh this week one of the other stories that's come out uh is that um, nurses and other hospital staff are going to be charged uh, to, for going to work um that is that is to say um parking fines have been reintroduced um or going to be reintroduced now um that's kind of the headline um the reality is that um it's actually down to individual hospital trusts um but uh to decide that and i know that I, I i'm quite upset about that because the first trade union the first and the largest trade union to back keir starmer in the leadership election was unison and unison i know many of my colleagues worked very very hard to get the free parking for staff um, at the start, well, they've been working on it for months or e- even years um, prior to the pandemic. But when the pandemic started, it created a real impetus for it. Um, and all of that has just been chucked out of the window. Fines are going to be reimposed, and it's just another way for uh, it's just another way for people to make money because in most cases that service is. Um, is is hired out to some sort of private company which runs the car park on on the half on behalf of the hospital trust um so it's it's much like with the restaurants reopening uh, it's about ensuring that the people that the capitalists can make money that's what it's that's what it's all about rather than thinking about public safety or, or what uh, makes uh common sense and that matters to people. That really that really matters to people and it will be such an easy win um for for Labor to say, look, we we don't think uh people who are going to work should have to pay to go to work um by having to pay these exorbitant car park charges. Bradley.
3: Yeah, it's it's just a no-brainer, isn't it? It's just so obvious. Um, and the frustrating thing is, you know, the, the Tories have sort of really lent into the protect the NHS and throughout the pandemic, they they've lent really lent into the, the love of the NHS that, that the British public have. Um, and this, you know, from a man that doesn't do gestures, you know, you're out on the doorstep of Number Ten, clapping NHS nurses every week. Um, and then you know, as as soon as things begin to look like they're maybe dying down a little bit, where when the public don't feel as on high alert, um, you know, the, the moment that that sort of alertness begins to waver a little bit, um, and and people aren't sort of uh, out capping every week for the for NHS nurses, um, instantly, um, th- there's this sort of um, failure to to provide just a a very basic service for for people that work in, in the NHS, um. And it's disappointing not to see Labour pushing harder on it as well. Um, it's frustrating because it's a no-brainer for Labour, really. It's not a particularly expensive um, thing to pledge, um, and and it's it's got overwhelming public support. So I I just don't understand why Labour's not pushing harder on it.
2: Uh, sorry, yeah, I was just gonna say it, it certainly makes you question where where the Labour leadership. Um, kind of where their priorities are at the moment. Like as you say, they they could have been kind of scoring all these goals and offering a real kind of alternative to these um these policies which which care more about profit for for corporations than they do about like real people. Especially when you when as you say, um the the government were just um gesturing supporting um key workers and nurses uh, just a few weeks ago, um, and now they've turned around, arguably, um, on them. And it seemed to be that they were only supporting them when it was politically um, positive for them to do so, um, to make it look like they were on their side. But but now they're telling nurses to pay for parking and and Boris was uh, blaming care home management for the rates of COVID-19 in care homes and putting it down to poor management. so yeah, I think it's completely transparent, really, and quite quite frankly, kind of disgusting how they've they've used them for political gain um, when it's the issue of the day. But but now now we're seeing where where their true motives lie. I mean, we we probably knew, but yeah, it, it's it's not very um, it's not very kind of discreet. I would say.
1: Hmm. The um. The Labour Party is starting to, uh, what I mean by the Labour Party, I mean the grassroots Labour Party is just starting to get back in its, in its stride, local meetings have started to take place online, Um, I've taken part in a few already, Um, so I think we have to, we have to hope that maybe there'll be some internal pressure. Um because they uh, basically we've not really seen Keir Starmer function as a normal leader of the Labour Party. Um because he's pretty much been flying on his own without any sort of without the party really functioning properly. Um, you know, Parliament Parliament's been meeting but obviously it's all social distanced and so on. Um the Membership hasn't been meeting. it hasn't been agitating. it hasn't been active. there haven't been any elections um I think the the next step will be um seeing how this large membership, which you know was a half a million people i don't know whether it still is, but it's still going to be um, the largest party in great Britain um who many of whom joined post twenty fifteen with a radical conception of politics i think um, Bradley said before we uh, started recording that if you actually google um, car parking charges and labour most of the searches that you come up are from 2017 uh, Jeremy Corbyn promising to scrap those car parking uh, charges and um, so those are the sorts of ideals um, that people joins the party over and I think that um, because it's such an obvious thing you know that the, the memberships Bent on winning. And one of the reasons that Keir Starmer won is because, you know, he's he's uh, a, a white man with a posh voice, right? So and they think that will carry over over with the electorates. But they also know that we won't win without proper policies. Um, so, uh, do you think that that's going to have an impact in this in this new normal um, as uh, activists start to adapt to changing circumstances?
0: Uh, Callum Roper? I'd say that uh, it's certainly the responsibility of the grassroots to get the conversation started uh, in in the case of this leadership. I think we're so used to, certainly in the last few years in the Labour Party, for the leadership to be starting this dialogue about how do we tackle the big issues of our time. But now I think that it's a case of we've got to be putting pressure on ourselves uh for those changes so for uh, environmental changes economic changes that we want changes to social policy and how how we uh you know how we approach the big issues of our time it's it's frustrating that we don't have a leadership that's willing to be as proactive as the leadership in the past but if you compare that to to other labor leaderships beforehand it's it's very much the same um you know certainly since new labor but that's all we we're used to really corbyn was a blip in that so we need to be active as a membership but we need a, a party a whole unit as a party to be the mouthpiece for proper and radical change that's going to benefit so many people in this country. and i think you're right in talking about the easy wins i think the easy wins are the great way to get some momentum to get the activists uh, passionate again to get them ready to go because December was was an awful beating for us. It was it was an awful time, and I know a lot of people are still downhearted about it. So if we can start with the little wins, we can build that momentum, and then we can start that that process of actually changing society. And hopefully, by by having those little wins and seeing that the the leadership, the membership, and indeed the voters for the Labour Party are all Pulling in the same direction, we could hopefully make a, a change. And I know that's quite an optimistic view. Um, I have no idea whether it will actually come to fruition, but I sincerely yeah. hope that that's what we can do as a party. Um, is is pull together, um, have a have a grassroots-led policy front um, and, and make those radical changes and be making the the points that need to be made you know as i say the easy points but also the more challenging points the points that take a lot of argumentative uh, approach and a lot of challenging um concepts held for a long time by by the majority of people in this country
3: yeah um i i do um i think i th- i think a lot of people on the left have felt you know downhearted um, but, but also that that's sort of where we're we're always at that the radical left is always on the margins we're we're always um, the underdogs and um, we we know how to be in this space um, we know how to organise um, I think there's a, a specific challenge um, for how for how we adapt to the Keir Starmer era that I don't think we've necessarily got all the answers for um, but be, Being organised and fighting for small wins like this, I I think, make a logical first place to start. It it should be nothing on an open door, really.
2: Well, I think what was so amazing about um, kind of Corbyn era policies is is that he brought a lot of um, a lot of kind of things into into the mainstream um, political spectrum that weren't weren't frankly being discussed. um, But and I don't feel like. I don't feel like that's being offered anymore in in a lot of senses. I don't really feel like represented by by Starmer. Um so I think I think it's important to think about how how grassroots movements and and unions can bring these these issues to the forefront of politics. And yeah, it is absolutely kind of uncharted territory because we we haven't been in a situation where we have um a leader which is trying to bring together um both both kind of sides of the party, both kind of yeah, both 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 sides. Um and I don't know I don't know how is the best way to deal with that, but I, I certainly think that some of the things said by 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 Bradley then and, and Callum uh, are some some good things to start on.
1: Yeah, and it's I mean he's, he's me he's got one big strategic um, no. Goal, which is to try and win back what used to be called the red wall seats, um, and I think a lot of what we've seen over the last few weeks sort of uh, indicates that he doesn't really yet have a plan for doing that. Um, the The Corbyn approach was to was actually not too far away from what Barack Obama actually did in two thousand eight. Obviously. A very different politician, um, but his idea or the the idea of his campaign more accurately was to grow the vote, so reach out to people who feel disenfranchised by the electoral system, by the political system, um, get them registered to vote, um, and then obviously uh, hopefully they will vote for you, having done that, and it worked for Obama. Um, And it was working, I think, for us in 2017. We we massively expanded the electorate, I think got about two million more votes than we would have done otherwise. Um, And then it sort of slipped off the agenda. I think the movement became a bit complacent by 2019, actually. It's one of the reasons, contributing reasons, that we lost. Um, What worries me about Keir Starmer's approach so far is that there's no indication that that is being... Uh, continued or even tried um we saw when the black lives matter issue arose um you know he was very reluctant to endorse the uh defund the police approach maybe don't use those words because we don't have quite i don't think we have the same uh cultural um disapproval of the of the police as we do I- in america um even if a lot of the same things do happen, maybe not to quite the uh, same extreme extent, but mainly because they don't have guns, um, most of them. Um, but he was instantly saying, no, no, Black Lives Matter, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're talking nonsense and so on. Um, and it feels like he's trying to appeal to the sort of social conservative or the perceived social conservatism of of people up north, uh, which is a very stereotypical view of, of the northern working class, not necessarily, not a particularly healthy one. Um, and that worries me because that's basically not too far away from the strategy that Ed Miliband had, you know, he put out that mug saying, you know, these are our priorities. Oh, by the way, um, also controls on immigration is one of them, you know, for example, completely asinine. Not really pass for a coherent economic agenda but it's part of that sort of if if um of basically pandering pandering to the right but it's it doesn't win us elections and it's also a moral um i don't know if you have any thoughts on that bradley if you're not there callum so sorry uh, you were breaking up a yeah
3: maybe go with callum sorry. didn't hear all of it sorry i think it's my connection oh
1: okay sorry did you hear me, Calum?
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think I think we're we sort of there. There is some difficulties that have really come up. Um, I think sometimes when we're talking about the dialogue between the left and the right and our approach to things, it's it's problematic at times. Um, but also, we've got to remember, as a Labour Party, we have done so much in the past and it's difficult to sometimes use the past as a look to the future, um, but we have to remember that there is a common enemy out there, um, and we have to make northern communities, you know, as, as a southern person saying this, it, it seems, especially somebody from London, it's, it's very problematic, but we have to have a Labour Party that appears to northern communities to be on their side, but that shouldn't be Pandering to racist views because I think that in itself is 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 a, is a is the wrong approach. I think a lot of Northern communities are actually very open, um, very welcoming places, very diverse places. Um, it's it's a very dangerous stereotype to be playing into, um, and to so, and it paints up this North versus South divide. We're we're feeding into it. It's a product of our own making in a lot of senses. In that um, you know, we almost have a a London centric manifesto and then we promote a number of policies for the north. Let's have a nationwide approach and realize that the policies that we put forward should benefit working class people up and down the country. Yes, we can have certain projects and certain ideas tailored to um to this so-called northern powerhouse and a number of a number of the regions, but ultimately I think. The policies we have to offer, if we promote them properly and don't water them down with some of this rubbish that we put in immigration controls, we shouldn't be talking about that. We should be talking about positive changes, properly funding the NHS, putting education as a priority, you know, making sure people are living a good quality life and they're getting paid a good wage at work. But instead, it, it waters down what we're actually saying by Bringing in in these arguments or these these debates that shouldn't be had, really. I think uh, um, yes, people have concerns about um, immigration. We should talk to them about that, but we should be having a positive discussion on it, not a negative. We should be instead of trying to hold back the tide with pandering to you know calls for immigration controls. Perhaps actually, let's turn the tide. Let's say you know what, immigration, you might be concerned about it, but actually it's real positive for this country and it helps us build that. Do you want to know why? Because our NHS, is its its foundations are on immigration, on immigrants coming here. In London, the transportation system, London Transport, wouldn't have succeeded and wouldn't be as, as, as successful as it is today if it wasn't for a number of people coming from the Caribbean and coming to work on the underground and on the buses. You know, so much industry... In the Midlands, um, before Thatcher took it apart, was reliant on immigrants coming in here and working and working damn hard, and we should be saying that, and we should be saying that this country is built by immigrants and and uh, and British people alike, hand in hand, not one or the other. And I think that by moving away from that dangerous dialogue of victimising certain people or finding these scapegoats, actually, I think we can bring people together with a positive image. That we have instead of a negative campaign
1: hmm. i think it's also a, a gross misrepresentation of, the, of this perception there's a perception of the working class as a sort of bigoted culture but it's not the, the if you think about um you know think of instance like the battle of Kel- cable street for example you know it's working class people standing together with a minority you know and it and actually, if you think about it for even five minutes, it makes sense. Most of the bigotry comes from the middle class, right? Because it's it's a quite simple, quite simple, um, it's quite simple sociological situation. If you live and you work with people who are, who are doing the same job as you in the same place, you know, having the same experiences, you're going to empathise with them, most likely. Um, you know, you're going to you you're going to have much more in common with them uh, than than say your boss for instance um whereas for for the middle class um you can very often you're living in a homogenous situation you know you're let's face it you know male white atmosphere most of the time um that is much more and obviously you're in some cases in the higher echelons of society you know. You, the thing you've got in common is you're wealthy, and you want to keep your wealth, and you want to make sure that the the the, the proles, if you like, continue making money for you. Um, and if you can try and stop them from clumping together by seeding wedge issues, uh, then that is how you're going to maintain your power. So the source of bigotry is not actually some uh, inherent, um, you know, instinct amongst. The, the zeitgeist of the, of the proletariat, it's actually deliberately spun from uh, the top of society downwards. That's how we, uh, how we um, and as we mentioned in the previous uh, podcast when we talked about anti-Semitism, if you play into that, if you indulge in ethno-nationalism, if you start talking about the white working class, you're playing directly into the hands of the capitalist class. You know, and that, that's that that's that's what you're doing. You need to detach yourself from it entirely, and really put that pressure on. I would say, as 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 the party starts to meeting again, as other activist um, groups start to mobilise again, really start putting the pressure on to make sure the Labour Party doesn't start going down that route. And it can be done because you know, we, um, um, even prior to Keir Starmer, there were occasional. Uh, wobbles under uh, Corbyn's leadership, um, especially when they were talking about free movement. Obviously, a very emotive issue for some people, um, and pressure from uh, the membership actually forced uh, Labour to do a U-turn on its position on 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 free movement, which was at the time viewed as being um, almost a, a dog whistle for for the gammons, shall we say. Um, that's my that's that's sort of my my sociological take on it um, and my advice to people uh, I'll take um, I think you guys guys, your final thoughts and I think we'll uh, end it there because we've been talking for um, nearly an hour Um, who wants to uh, finish up first do you want to come back Callum and then maybe we'll go to Bradley and we'll finish Mm -hmm. with
0: Yeah, I, I think that's the important thing. You're talking about splitting the working class and and I think increasingly we see in it is it, it it's fragmenting. Um people the, the the one thing that I always find particularly interesting is when people who are on twenty grand a year decide to defend billionaires' rights to be billionaires and not be taxed huge amounts, um somehow they have some sort of they have more solidarity with a billionaire than a working class person from another country that's come here to make a better life for themselves, and is on the same wages as them, if not worse. Um, so it's the seeds of division have been sowed. We've just got to we've just got to be able to put that weed killer down and stop that those weeds growing. Um, we've got to be able to realise that we have far more in common working class in this country has far more in common with each other than they do with the media barons and the middle class people that like to sow that division between them because ultimately we all benefit um when we work together
3: yeah um i, I agree um i think the rest of 2020 um, but the, also the rest of the 2020s the, the rest of the decade and um, we're, we're in for a bit of a bumpy ride um and I think the the Labour left and and the left outside of Labour as well we we need to start getting organised we need to start um being ready because I think there's going to be a lot of fights on a lot of different um fronts that that we need to be prepared for.
2: Um yeah sure so um I don't I don't think that the the current debate that's been in recent years around immigration um is a particularly healthy one I think the the narrative has been spun. A lot by the media, and I don't think it's healthy to pretend that the opinions of you know super super rich kind of right wing billionaire oligarchs is is the opinion of of public opinion. I guess. Um, I think that the last election was fought on uh, the grounds of immigration to a certain degree, um, being about Brexit. Um, I think that was well I don't know I just, I don't think that a single issue election was a particularly great thing to have at this time but um, yeah I, I think we do need to change the narrative about um, being positive about immigration and I think that's important um, yeah yeah
1: so I think we'll end with that one then um, try and stay positive if you are going out and uh, going to restaurants taking advantage of the vouchers from the government, try and stay safe, remember to wear your masks uh, and so on Um, but in the meantime I think we'll be back next week hopefully Uh, but in the meantime it's uh, goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Callum
0: Goodbye everyone, stay safe
1: and it's goodbye from Bradley, bye thanks And it's goodbye from Ollie. Bye, everyone. And we will see you next time.